Welcome to episode 51 of the G2 on 5G. It's our first episode of our second season, and we're excited to have a guest with us today as well. But it's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. Joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag, and we welcome Diana Guverts from Fierce Wireless uh, joining us, and we plan to have Diana uh, on the podcast at least once a month uh, moving forward. So Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get into my first topic this week. And Cradle Point and Solana announced a partnership to deliver 5G services. So what's the big deal about this? If you don't know Cradle Point, they power a lot of solutions that you probably interact with every day. Um, they're behind the, uh, the Redbox video kiosks. Um, they're also deployed in Starbucks and in a number of different locations. And um, they've, they've been delivering a, you know, an LTE and now a 5G router that enables you know, you know, connectivity in challenging areas and locations. And so you know, I've talked about Solana on prior podcasts. They're a startup providing uh, private 5G as a service. And so the, you know, the potential from my perspective is that um, Cradle Point will be able to leverage some of Solana's intellectual property, in particular, their micro slicing feature, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a network slicing feature um, that allows um, you to be able to fine tune um, an application's performance based on requirements for latency or throughput or that sort of thing. So um, I see this partnership as sort of supercharging, you know, Solana's capabilities. It brings Cradle Point some additional capability as well. And as you may recall, Cradle Point was recently acquired by Ericsson. So, you know, they have um, a very successful infrastructure provider behind them. And um, so I think uh, this is this is goodness on, on both sides of the fence there. So um, with that, Diane, I'm going to toss it over to you. And your first topic this week is you want to talk about Verizon C-Band and their millimeter wave carrier aggregation trialing. Yeah, so this is another thing that Verizon has going on. They're, they've been doing a lot of trials in the C-band. Um, I wrote a story about how they were doing trials in a bunch of different places, uh, trying to pinpoint where they might launch first. Um, but this week is a uh, millimeter wave carrier aggregation trial. So they were able to hit 4.3 gigabits per second, and that was using a 100 megahertz channel of C-band and a 600 megahertz channel of millimeter wave. Um, and for me, the big deal about this is that it used uh, 5G carrier aggregation. So carrier aggregation is not a new technology, right? We have it in 4G. That's not the big deal. But for 5G, this is going to allow operators to use a higher band downlink, so faster, faster, faster speeds with a lower band uplink, which will help with range. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out is this is something we saw when uh, T-Mobile did a carrier aggregation trial with 600 megahertz and 2.5 gigahertz back in October. So this to me kind of signals a ramping up of a technology that's going to be really key in the 5G world. Um, so I don't know if maybe, uh, Angel, you had something to add there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that is going to be necessary for a lot of operators to build out millimeter wave, especially considering it's still a line of sight technology. Uh, I do think it'll be interesting to see how Verizon's um, carrier aggregation using mid-band with millimeter wave will work, just because we don't really know what their mid-band coverage will be like, and we don't even know 
what a, what it will look like in four years. So I, I think it'll be interesting just because they have a very different coverage story than say T-Mobile with their 600 megahertz band. But otherwise it's still a positive thing regardless. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You know, um, we've talked about, you know, their their $45 billion purchase of, you know, of spectrum assets and they're going to have to find creative ways to to get the right level of performance out of that investment. You know, and you know, Angela, you made a good point. You know, millimeter wave does require densification given, you know, the shorter propagation distance. So, you know, a very smart move on their part for sure. I think that carries us back to Angel for the next piece of news, right? Yep. Yeah. So this one is related to Starlink, and and basically what it what it says is that um, Starlink, first of all, has five hundred thousand users uh, that are potential customers uh, that have put orders in for a Starlink kit, which includes their motorized uh, dish that can receive signal, but also um, they were reporting that Ookla had gone in and um, basically taken data samples from users that were connected to Starlink and assessing the speeds of people's connections relative to broadband that was available um, locally. So that in some places uh, it was up to, what is it? 500 times faster than the local connection mm-hmm. and other places it was 70% slower. So this is going to be a story that you're probably going to see happen constantly. But ultimately the, the interesting data is that the median download spings from Starlink ranged from 40 megabits to 90 megabits, which is pretty good for a satellite technology. And Starlink does tell user their beta users who are currently what's who's using the network today they can expect speeds from 50 to 150 megabits with latency from 20 to 40 milliseconds so there's they seem to be hitting what they're promising uh, so far um and it'll really come down to how does this scale and whether or not they're going to be able to scale 500,000 users or even millions of users, which I think is ultimately what they're going to have to do. Um, I, I think the real, the real question is gonna come down to what kind of infrastructure they have to have in place to supply you know, that thousand satellites that they plan on launching um, to, to, to be able to deliver this service on a global scale. Um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you have thought? Do you have any thoughts, Will? Yeah, I do. So, um, well, one one note um, that those five hundred thousand orders came in on uh, May the fourth. So, Star Wars Day was interesting, but you know we've talked about um, Starlink on prior podcasts, and you know even even at those speed levels and the inconsistency, th- these are game changers for people in rural America. And you know, I and and I I think I mentioned this on a prior podcast as well. I spent time with Tractor Supply Company. Um, they have a footprint of over 2,000 locations, and they, they are located in rural parts of the United States. Um, they're trialing something, I believe, in Montana, and th- they're seeing, you know, 10 times the performance improvement with, with the Starlink system. So, um, yeah, it will take time. I think there are concerns about, you know, the contention of the, the number of satellites that are, that are potentially going to be in orbit because this is a low Earth orbit deployment to get the right latency and performance that you need. Um, and we've also talked about OneWeb and others that are providing, you know, you know, similar services. So it's almost like, you know, there's a space race, you know, with, with respect to Leo, 
Um, but it'll be interesting to see how you know things you know you know turn out longer term. Diana, any anything to add? Yeah, actually, um, um, Anshul, to your point about scaling, uh, I think uh, Elon Musk tweeted something about how they're going to be able to serve these uh, you know half a million customers just fine. The problem is going to come when they get to millions and millions. Um, and the other point I wanted to make is I'm pretty sure Starlink just got a whole boatload of money from the government um, in one of these uh, funding auctions that they just did. I think it was Ardoff, right? Um, was yeah. that the one? Um, Elon I think it, does a yeah. good job of getting the, the government yeah. dollars. I mean, he's done that with Tesla and SpaceX, right? $900 million from Ardoff, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. To your, like, That's why reports like the one that came out from Ookla are important because it's kind of showing what we're throwing money at um, as a country. Um, and I think that's really interesting to keep an eye on going forward, uh, especially given how many satellite players are kind of uh, jostling for room. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I agree. I agree. Well, let's move to my second and final topic this week. Um, I want to talk about T-Mobile and they crushed their Q1 earnings. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I'm going to, I've got some stats right here. Um, they, uh, their earnings were 92 cents a share, beating most estimates of about, you know, 50 to 55 cents. Um, when you look at their, their revenue improvement, you know, quarter, you know, or year over year, I mean, they've gone from, you know, you know, about 11, 11 billion to almost 20 billion, um, ending, ending March of, uh, of this year. And, you know, and so they, they continue to hit on all cylinders. You know, we've talked about that they have the most complete spectrum footprint with the Sprint assets. And, um, and so they're just killing it in consumer. And, you know, so it kind of begs the question, um, is there additional upside? And, and certainly uh, Neville and the team believe that, you know, just given the, um, the, the forecast that they, uh, that they provided, um, you know, financial and technology, uh, technology analysts like ourselves, um, but I think there's, there is definitely tremendous upside and that upside is really going to come in the form of their building out their enterprise services portfolio. Um, we've talked about um, what they've done to kind of start that, but I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity ahead of them, especially with IOT. And when you look at the investment that Sprint made prior to the merger with their Curiosity I, uh, IOT network. So um, I mean, the future's looking very bright for them. You know, they're, they're killing it on, you know, on all fronts from a consumer perspective. They're certainly out in front of their competitors with 5G when you look at standalone as one example. And I see, you know, tremendous upside, you know, with respect to um, the enterprise services. So, Diana, anything to add there? Yeah. So I believe um, it was our editor-in-chief, Linda Hardesty, just wrote a story about this. Uh, but the two things I'm watching uh, in terms of T-Mobile are its moves in the enterprise space um, and also its moves on edge computing. I think you guys talked about this on one of your recent podcasts, mm -hmm. the deal that they did with Lumen. Um, I think on the earnings call, I, I believe Mike Sievert kind of mentioned that they're going to have more news around that coming later this year uh, in terms of working with uh, customers to deploy new services. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they turn that partnership with Lumen into a rev revenue generating opportunity. Um, and again, back to what they're doing in the enterprise, not just enterprise connections um, in terms of serving them with mobile services or work from home suites, uh, but also what potential moves they might make around private networks. Mm -hmm. um, 
so that is definitely something we'll be watching. Um, and a shameless plug here for uh, Fierce's upcoming uh, <laughs> wireless networking summit. Uh, it's coming next week. We're going to be doing a lot of great stuff. So tune in. <laughs> yeah, no, awesome stuff. I, I think private networking is going to be a big deal, just like the internet. <laughs> but uh, Diana, you want to talk your second and final topic this week. You want to talk about U.S. Cellular, right? And they're an operator that provides a lot of support for rural America, right? Yeah, uh, if I remember correctly, they, well, now they would be the fourth. They used to be the fifth largest operator. Right. Now they're the fourth. Um, and they have some more um, news on millimeter wave. Um, to, to our points earlier about millimeter wave not really propagating so well, they did an extended range test with, I think it was Ericsson, Insego, and Qualcomm. Um, and in, it was a fixed wireless trial, and they reached seven kilometers, which is about 4.3 miles. Um, and they achieved sustained average downlink speeds of about a gigabit per second um, and sustained average uplink speeds of about 55 megabits per second. Um, and so I just want to point out that this kind of builds on a trial that they did in September 2020, uh, again, with, I think, Ericsson and Qualcomm. Um, again, it was an extended range trial. And that earlier trial uh, used 28 gigahertz. Um, and during that one, they reached five kilometers, so 3.1 miles. So they're they're kind of stretching it out further and further and notably getting faster speeds because in the earlier one, they were only around 100 megabits per second. So it's quite a big difference. Um, and it's also noteworthy that US Cellular has 24, 28, 39 gigahertz. Um, and you know, in talking with them and some of their executives last year, um, they had mentioned that they were kind of looking around fixed wireless opportunities, um, as well as using millimeter wave in denser areas within their footprint. This is kind of exciting because obviously, though it's U.S. Cellular's trial, they are not the only one in the U.S. who's pursuing millimeter wave. Um, and I'm wondering what you guys think about whether this has implications for Verizon, uh, for even AT&T. Um, Angel, do you have anything there? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts around millimeter wave. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of people out there that are very negative about millimeter wave, but I think it's because a lot of them were misled about what millimeter wave is capable of um, and understanding its characteristics. And I don't think millimeter wave is ever going to be a technology that's available everywhere, but I do think it will have very useful purposes in you know stadiums, concert venues, but also as a fixed wireless solution mm -hmm. yeah. to deliver that last mile. This is the, the, the biggest problem that so many operators have today, which is delivering that last mile of service, you know, digging that last mile of fiber, that last mile of copper, whatever it might be. Uh, that's the most costly amount of digging that they have to do. And I think that if they can really build these out in, in places that are needed the most, I could totally see this being a technology that improves rural broadband, as well as I think being a really powerful technology for small businesses, where we could see suburban and urban small businesses getting access to internet where they simply couldn't get it before because they didn't want to tear up the streets. So I do think long-term millimeter wave is going to be very powerful. Um, and I think these kinds of speeds prove that it it can scale to a point where it is a viable technology. And that range, which is impressive on its own, also shows that millimeter wave 
and 5G can operate much like millimeter wave does today for you know, proprietary backhaul technologies. Um, because there's a lot of companies that already use millimeter wave as a backhaul. And I think that's gonna be how we use it for 5G, but obviously as, a, as an anchor for other bands and um, as a way to just deliver internet to people who have, have been struggling with DSL for the last decade. Yeah, I'll, I've got one comment there. I think fixed wireless access is a total slam dunk for U.S. cellular. Um, and I've talked about it on prior podcasts about how I believe it's going to be a critical element in getting the digital divide, you know, bridged and, and built out. And so that's, an, from my perspective, that's an absolute slam dunk for them. Can I just uh, add one more thing um, to your points about uh, rural and closing the digital divide? I was actually speaking with... Um, CCA CEO Steve Berry uh, recently, um, and he wasn't speaking about millimeter wave specifically, so I don't want to put those words in his mouth. Um, but he was talking about the importance of using um, broadband funding to include both fixed and wireless technologies like fixed wireless access. And his point was that, uh, yeah, you can run fiber to a farmer's house, but that doesn't cover his barn. It doesn't cover his fields for those IoT use cases for those yeah, precision agriculture. So seeing us cellular do this makes me wonder whether that might be um a real game changer for uh the rural markets um and i just want to shout out to um my colleagues bevan fletcher and monica for bringing both uh the us cellular story and the verizon story to my attention this week uh they are rad and now i think we have one more piece of news right yeah yes and she'll take us out last one yeah. uh so the last one is uh basically that India is doing its first 5G trials, uh, preparing for the launch of its 5G networks later this year. And what's interesting is the big four operators, which are Bharti, Airtel, MTN, Reliance Geo, and Vodafone, are conducting these 5G trials, but they're not conducting them with any equipment from Huawei or ZTE, which is interesting because the government actually said that it was okay. So the government actually gave these operators clearance to use uh, Chinese infrastructure vendors, uh, but they chose not to. Um, and as a result, they're using Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung, and CDOT uh, instead of using Huawei or Ericsson. Um, and what's interesting is these trials will ultimately determine what equipment can be used in the commercial networks, because um, from what I understand, these are not commercial deployments, so they're not allowed to connect these to their commercial networks. And as a result, uh, these are being tested to verify their, their compatibility and you know, that they fit within the, the government's expectations of radiation and, and, and all those kinds of things. So it'll be interesting because if, the, if ZTE and Huawei aren't validated in these trials, I don't think they're going to be able to use them. So this might be a political posturing where yeah, the yeah. government approves it for use, but quietly the operators are told not to use it in their trials, which then, you know, allows the government to wash its hands of any responsibility that they banned uh, Huawei or ZTE. So it, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, but it seems like this is another loss for Huawei and ZTE on the infrastructure side. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments, Will. I do. So, you know, I, I see this as being sort of politically motivated. I mean, it's no secret. India right now is struggling with, uh, with COVID-19 
And the U.S. is doing all that it can to, to get them equipment, to manufacture vaccines, to get them vaccines and that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, behind the scenes, this isn't some, some sort of, you know, political realignment. But um, I wanted to ask you, Anshul, as you double clicked into this, um, what about, you know, the use of OpenRAN? Because, you know, like, you know, like Reliance as an operator, right? They were very, they were very highly virtualized with respect to rolling out their LTE network, right? They did it, you know, in, in record time. Um, is OpenRAN even a consideration? Because the, the you know, the added, you know, the, there is complexity with it, but you know, the benefit is a sort of a more North American aligned supply chain with hardware and software vendors. So I'm wondering if you have any any color or perspective on what they're what they're kind of considering around OpenRAN. So I didn't see any mention of OpenRAN. However, Reliance Geo will be using its own equipment, uh, which I believe will be highly customized OpenRAN. Right. That and that's sense. why I think, I think that's where you're going to see OpenRAN deployed is yeah. in their custom built network with what they claim to be their own hardware. So yeah. we'll see how that works out. Um, I, I don't know if, Diana, you had any insights before I wrap it up. Not really. It's just uh, really interesting to me um, to see kind of what happens when uh, the Indian market kind of shuts out certain players, uh, you know, from a handset perspective, uh, I guess uh, Apple was really pursuing India um, and, and they kind of bent over backwards to try to make sure they could get their foot in the door. So it'll be interesting from my perspective to see what this does to Huawei or ZTE to lose out on what is going to be a huge market. Um, so that's all I have to add. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely the fastest growing market uh, for a long time. And they're, mm -hmm. they're easily one of the largest markets for 4G and they will be one of the largest for 5G. So I, I totally understand that. And it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out long-term. But I think that kind of wraps things up for us this week. So uh, we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. Uh, if anyone out there would like to reach out to us to provide a specific insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Diana's at Diamarie's Beat. Will is at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshal Sag. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.